Faye, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date in a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, that's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over, over coffee. coffee. Faye, it's been a little while since we've talked about diabetes of any kind, um, but there's been some updates in the world of gestational diabetes screening. So I thought it'd be a nice thing to go back and do a little bit of a throwback today. So let's talk updates in diabetes screening. What are our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we're going to review the physiology of insulin resistance in pregnancy. Um, we're going to familiarize ourselves with the prevalence, classification, and diagnostic methods for gestational diabetes. And then we're going to apply emerging evidence to choice of GDM screening methods and to early GDM screening. And then something I think that, you know, you pointed out, Nick, is that we've done DKA, we've done... Um, you know, GDM, but we've never actually done a pre-gestational diabetes episode. So I think that's definitely next on our list. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. definitely an oversight. So upcoming listeners. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, before we kind of start off, it's uh, kind of crazy. We first talked about this on the podcast um, with Dr. Kustan very shortly we, after we began the podcast in December of 2018. Um, and those podcasts are great and, of course, feature the uh, famous uh, Dr. Kustan of the Carpenter-Kustan criteria. Um so definitely go back and listen to those. But if you've been watching the journals recently, you've probably seen a lot of interesting papers with respect to GDM screening. So today's episode, we're going to do a little bit more of an update um, on part one of those past GDM podcasts. Um, and, you know, treatment, uh, fortunately, hasn't changed too much, so we won't update that part. But if you want to follow along, definitely read ACOG Practice Bulletin 190 on gestational diabetes. All right, Nick, let's start this off. So let's first talk about the physiology of insulin resistance in pregnancy. Why do some people get GDM? Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of a throwback to say it, Faye, but 
No, when we started out the podcast, I think we blamed everything on progesterone. Yes. And it's <laughs> yep. been a while since we did that. So just, again, hearkening to the throwback, blame it on progesterone. Um, normally, insulin, you know, binds to an insulin receptor that causes a downstream phosphorylation of a beta subunit of that receptor. And that phosphorylates the insulin receptor substrate one. And essentially, progesterone reduces expression of this insulin receptor substrate one. And so basically increases insulin resistance. It makes it less effective because it reduces the downstream cellular expression of something that makes insulin effective. But in insulin resistance in pregnancy, there's a co-conspirator as well to progesterone, and that's human placental lactogen, or HPL. Now, HPL is kind of an interesting one. It has both insulin-like and anti-insulin effects, but the kind of preponderance of things suggests that it's more anti-insulin. It decreases maternal insulin sensitivity, it decreases maternal glucose utilization, and it increases lipolysis and free fatty acid production maternally. The goal of this essentially is to allow for free fatty acids to become available for maternal metabolism, and those free fatty acids don't cross the placenta. So essentially HPL is saying, mom, you get fatty acids to make up and be your metabolism, and then all all of this glucose that you're no longer able to utilize will cross the placenta and is going to go to the fetus because the fetus should get preference in terms of the glucose. Now, in pathologic states, the fetus will get exposed to hyperglycemia because of the effects of progesterone and human placental lactogen. And the fetus has its own insulin, its own insulin production from its pancreas, that it's going to use to respond to that hyperglycemia. In turn, that is going to produce insulin-like growth factor 1, and both insulin and insulin-like growth factor 1 are growth factors. So these babies end up growing to good sizes, there's a lot of fat deposition, and of course kind of the major risk that we always think about with diabetes in pregnancy are LGA, large for gestational age babies, and macrosomia. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of the basic science, if you will, that you have to be able to understand about insulin and insulin resistance in pregnancies. But let's jump now to sort of the clinical prevalence and classifications about gestational diabetes. Yeah, so in terms of prevalence of diabetes, it's hard to know because not everybody is tested, um, as hard as that is to believe, since I feel like we definitely hound our patients to get tested for GDM. So in 2009, of the people in pregnancy who had diabetes, 7% were in people who had diabetes um, outside of pregnancy as well, and 86% of the cases were women with GDM. Um, and now to kind of talk about classification and things like that, so it's uh, nice to go back and look at your white classifications. And depending on where you are, you may still see this in use. And it's helpful in classifying pregestational diabetes um, as well as, I guess, you know, your gestational diabetes. And just to give you some history, this is named after Dr. Priscilla White, who developed the schema in the 1950s and 60s. And so the way that it's classified is it goes from A to F, and then there are several other letters that kind of uh, are based off of the different types of uh 
comorbidities that are associated with the diabetes. So class A1 is your diet-controlled GDM. A2 is the medication-controlled GDM, and I think most people are probably familiar with that. Um, class B diabetes is actually when the diabetes is onset at age 20 or older with a duration of less than 10 years. C is when the onset is at age 10 to 19 years or the duration of the diabetes has gone on for 10 to 19 years. And then D is if the diabetes was had an onset before age of 10 or the duration of the diabetes has been going on for longer than 20 years. And then E is overt diabetes with calcified pelvic vessels. Um, F is when there's also diabetic nephropathy. H is when there's ischemic heart disease. R is when there's proliferative retinopathy. And then RF is when there's both retinopathy and nephropathy. And then of course, T is if there's a prior kidney transplant. So really what you can see is that the white classifications uh, tell us a little bit about how long the patient has had diabetes or how bad potentially their diabetes are because of other comorbidities. All right. So now that we've gone over the prevalence and the classifications, Nick, let's talk a little bit more about complications specifically of GDM. Why do we as OBGYNs care about GDM? Yeah. So, I mean, it might be a silly question to ask, but depending on where you are in your training, you might wonder, so what is so special about diabetes of pregnancy? And we can break this down again into kind of two broad categories of classifications, maternal and fetal. On the maternal side, there's higher risk of developing preeclampsia, needing C-section, um, and things related essentially to larger babies, including shoulder dystocia and their maternal trauma risk associated with that. The other big thing that to know about gestational diabetes is that it's associated with a large increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. Some estimates state that up to 70% of patients with gestational diabetes will develop type 2 diabetes within the roughly 25 years after a pregnancy. Um, so, no, it's a pretty big warning flag that type 2 diabetes may be down the line. From a fetal complication perspective, again, we talked a lot about big baby things, so increased risk of macrosomia, um, increased risk of shoulder dystocia and birth trauma, associated with sort of that insulin production on the baby side too. Once that umbilical cord is cut, they don't have access to that sugar anymore, and so they can end up with neonatal hypoglycemia and hyperbilirubinemia as a consequence of that. There's a lot of antenatal testing things that we do for patients with diabetes because there is an increased risk of stillbirth. This is definitely more pronounced in pre-gestational diabetes, but it's still present in gestational diabetes. And then fetal exposure to maternal diabetes may be part of the programming hypothesis where basically maternal diabetes may contribute to adult onset obesity and diabetes in the fetus ultimately. Um, and so again, there are lifelong consequences, not just for mom, but potentially for baby as well. So the premise of this episode, Faye, is really to talk about screening. Um, but before we can get into the new stuff, we got to go over the basics once more. Yes. So in terms of screening for GDM, uh, again, a little bit of history, but it used to just be done via medical history and past obstetric outcomes and family history. And when we're just doing this, you actually failed to get 50% of patients who actually are going to develop GDM or will have GDM. So uh, nowadays, all pregnant patients should be screened between 24 to 28 weeks with one of two strategies. So either the two-step or the one-step. 
So the two-step um, is in two parts. So the first part was actually described by O'Sullivan and their colleagues in 1973, where you had a one-hour glucose tolerance test with 50 grams of glucose. And then based on Carpenter-Kustan criteria, this would be positive if your value was greater than or equal to 130 milligrams per deciliter, though some institutions will use 140 um, and some institutions will also use 135. So that's your first step. And if you screen positive, you then get a follow-up test with a three-hour glucose tolerance test or a 100-gram load of glucose. Um, and then you're diagnosed with gestational diabetes if you have two abnormal values. But we know that even if one of these values are elevated, this increases your risk of having adverse perinatal outcomes compared to women without GDM or any elevated values in the three-hour. So for the Carpenter-Kustan criteria, the sugar levels that we're looking for is a fasting of less than 95, a one hour of less than 180, a two hour of, of less than 155, and a three hour of less than 140. There's also alternative criteria, though it's not widely used by the National Diabetes Data Group, where fasting should be less than 105, the one hour should be less than 190, the two hours should be less than 165, and the three hours should be less than 145. An alternative to this is just to do a one-step screening, which is recommended by the International Association for the Study of Diabetes and Pregnancy Group. And this method is a two-hour test where you give a 75-gram glucose load. And so you'll do fasting, one hour, and two hour. And these values should be less than 92 for fasting, less than 180 for the one hour, and less than 153 for the two hour. And if any of these are elevated, that means that the patient has gestational diabetes. All right, so Nick, I do know that some patients will actually do some early GDM screening, you know, some patients who have certain history or things like that. So when would you consider that early GDM screening for your patients? You can consider early gestational diabetes screening for patients with certain risk factors. Um, and ACOG in the practice bulletin, again, it was updated last in 2019. So there's some kind of old things that probably should get updated, but we'll include the practice bulletin box on our website um, in terms of thinking about screening strategies for those who might be at high risk. Certainly patients who are overweight or obese should be considered in this category. But then if they have other risk factors that seem to probably capture a lot of individuals, you know, physical inactivity, a first-degree relative with diabetes, um, history of having given birth to a, an infant weighing 4,000 grams, about 9 pounds or more before, anybody with a history of gestational diabetes in a prior pregnancy, anybody with hypertension, anybody with abnormal cholesterol values, patients with PCOS, patients with known uh, pre-diabetes rather than full diabetes or someone with a history of cardiovascular disease. The ACOG bulletin also recommends screening on the basis of race and ethnicity, classifying high-risk race or ethnicities. And again, we know that there are some limitations to that particular approach, um, but we mention it here for the sake of completeness. Now, the best test to use for early screening is not really given by ACOG because it's really up for debate. Now, some folks might consider just doing an A1C, which is a really easy point of care, doesn't require a glucose test to follow up, anything like that. Um, but in pregnancy, we know that plasma volume expands, there's new red cell generation quickly, there's faster turnover of red cells. And so that basically may artificially lower the A1C for individuals. And so we might miss their prediabetes in that sense. 
you might consider doing a glucose tolerance test, like giving them a 50 gram glucose load like you would later in pregnancy. Um, but then a lot of these strategies rely on if they screen negative at the beginning that you're screening them again at 24 to 28 weeks. And I don't know about you, Faye, but I've tried one of those 50 gram drinks before and it's like not very tasty. And I can't imagine like doing 50, 100 and then screening out and then later on doing 50 and 100 again. Yeah, that sounds pretty miserable. <laughs> And then, you know, the last thing that folks might consider is like a trial of glucose profiling early on where they get a glucometer and you tell them to check their blood sugars on a certain regimen or something. But there's not any rigorous evidence or testing surrounding this and what the value of it might be. Um, and so it's hard to say exactly whether that's worth anything. Um, but Part of what we're going to talk about next, really excitingly, are some updates in the world of screening, where we're going to have some insights into the value of early screening, as well as about one step versus two step and other things like that. So, Faye, the first thing I'm going to pose to you is the question that I think a lot of people ask when they hear about the one step screening. Now, on its face, it sounds like that might actually be better, right? They only have to come one time to get screened. It's only one drink. Um, that seems like it might be a nice way to approach it. But is it actually better? Better. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and I think it's one that people have been trying to answer. And so fortunately, in the last year, there have been two articles that came out, two randomized trials, one in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine and one in AJOG, um, as well as a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Green Journal um, to help try and answer this question. So uh, because the findings are similar, we're just going to pretty much summarize the meta-analysis. So patients who have that one-step screening are more likely to be diagnosed with GDM. So it's a 16.3% versus 8.3% um, in the one-step versus two-step in this meta-analysis. And then the patients with the one-step screening are also more likely to be started on some type of medication. So again, 7.1 versus 3.8%. So again, about twice as likely. These patients who are getting the one-step screening were also more likely to have a NICU admission, so it's like 5.1% versus 4.5%. And patients undergoing the one-step screening were also more likely to have babies experience hypoglycemia, so 9.3% versus 7.6%. And then the rates of LGA, or large for gestational age babies, are similar between the strategies. So it was 8.8% in the one step and 9.2% in the two steps. And then the rate of primary C-section was similar between the two groups. It was 24% on the one step versus 24.7% in the two steps. So from all of this, what can we conclude? Basically, it seems like the one-step testing seems to increase resource utilization, meaning more diagnosis, more folks on treatment, more NICU admission. The one-step testing, however, does not appear to differ from two-step testing for some maternal short-term outcomes, so things like LGA, C-section rate, or fetal outcomes. We didn't cover this above, but also, you know, shoulder dystocia, respiratory distress, stillbirth, neonatal deaths were all similar between the two groups, though albeit, albeit very rare for both groups. Now, we don't have any significant evidence about long-term outcomes for the mother or the baby. So, for example, later-in-life diabetes diagnoses, obesity rates, and things like that. And so an editorial about the meta-analysis actually makes the case that the one-step testing might still be cost-effective if the increased resource utilization meant fewer downstream consequences. Um, so that still remains to be seen, of course, and is unfortunately pretty tough to study because you have to follow these kids out for many, many years. 
So let's move on then to that early GDM screening that you talked about, Nick. So is there anything new regarding that early GDM screen? Yeah, there actually are. So since the last time that we podcasted and talked a little bit about this, there have been two US-based randomized trials, um, one by Dr. Roeder and the other by Dr. Harper. In Dr. Roeder's paper, um, patients with an A1C of greater than 5.7% or a fasting glucose of over 92, but were not diagnosed with diabetes, so these folks were essentially known to be pre-diabetic, were ultimately randomized to starting hyperglycemia therapy and nutritional counseling at the time of enrollment in early pregnancy versus doing the usual timing of gestational diabetes screening in the third trimester. So basically, They were getting folks started on treatments and screening either first trimester or doing it in third trimester. Now, the study was ultimately ended early due to poor enrollment, unfortunately, but with the patients that they did recruit, they found that treatment in early pregnancy didn't seem to improve maternal or neonatal outcomes, including fat mass, weight percentile, macrosomia rates, or maternal weight gain. And then treatment also didn't significantly reduce the diagnosis rate of gestational diabetes at a usual timing screening test. So basically, even if they got started on treatment early, there wasn't a significant reduction in the rate of diagnosis of gestational diabetes at 24 to 28 weeks on that usual timed test. Now, those differences were 14.2% in the early treatment group versus 25.8% in the usual treatment group. You might glance at that and say, well, that seems like a difference. But again, this trial didn't complete, so this finding was actually insignificant. So maybe underpowered to detect that difference. Yeah. Um, In the Harper paper, on the other hand, it was a little bit different, but also lends some interesting insights. So this paper specifically took obese patients defined as a BMI of 30 or greater and randomized them to a traditional two-step test in the early part of pregnancy, namely 14 to 20 weeks, versus waiting for traditional timing at 24 to 28 weeks. If they screened negative at the early point, they got retested at the traditional timing. Um, So again, this would be like the most possible testing that you could do for somebody for diabetes screening. And essentially in following these patients out, early screening didn't reduce the composite perinatal outcome, and it didn't seem to affect any other important secondary outcomes, either maternally or neonatally. In short, kind of taking away from these papers, I think there's still a long way to go on proving the value of an early gestational diabetes screen, particularly when it comes to doing those multiple glucose challenge tests. It doesn't seem that early treatment or early screening is leading to those short-term outcomes that we care about. Um, Though again, in the Rotor paper, it was an interesting thing looking at those pre-diabetic patients, but probably just underpowered to detect some of those differences. All right. And then, Faye, I think the latest paper in this lineup we wanted to review um, is honestly a super common and interesting patient question that I'll get regarding the usual 50-gram glucose tolerance test. Yeah. So the question I feel like I always get is, you know, can I eat before my one-hour glucose tolerance test, right? Or like, if I can't eat, what can I eat? Um, There's actually a great paper that tries to answer this from a very recent Green Journal article in just January. So just 
coming out this month, um, where a group at Stanford randomized patients to a six-hour fast prior to the one-hour test versus eating uh, within two hours of their oral glucose tolerance test. So they called them the fed versus fasting groups, and they actually found that the fed group had a lower rate of screening positive, so only 13%, versus the fasting group, 31%. Um, And ultimately, the incidence of GDM was also higher in the fasting group, so 12.4% versus 5%. And this group theorized that this was due to a phenomenon previously called starvation diabetes. So basically fasting will actually lead to an increase in glucagon and decrease in insulin. And then that will make you transiently glucose intolerant. And then later the insulin's gonna kick back in and returns you back to a normal metabolic state. So Ultimately, this study only had about 100 individuals per arm, so it's hard to draw conclusions about you know, neonatal and obstetric outcomes, but uh, none were different in what they were able to assess. So the takeaway point from here is it's hard to know completely, of course, because it is a small study, but you know, I think what this tells me is that it, we probably don't need to encourage people to fast prior to their one-hour glucose test, which is good. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, so why don't we very quickly summarize? Absolutely. So we started off talking about the physiology of insulin resistance in pregnancy, again, blaming everything on progesterone and human placental lactogen. The summary of these effects are that they decrease insulin sensitivity maternally and increase lipolysis and free fatty acid production, allowing those fatty acids to be for mom's metabolism and glucose for fetus metabolism. In terms of prevalence and classification of diabetes, we briefly went over the prevalence, so it's hard to know the prevalence of gestational diabetes given that not everybody is uh, screened, but we do know that the majority of patients with diabetes in pregnancy have GDM. We then briefly went over the white classifications for diabetes themselves, and then we discussed, of course, the complications of GDM, meaning why do we care, and that's because we know that there are increased maternal complications of developing things like preeclampsia and undergoing a C-section, as well as increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. And specifically for the fetus, there's increased risk of things like macrosomia, neonatal hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubinemia, and shoulder dystocia and birth trauma, and also increased risk of stillbirth. And there's also possible long-term effects like adult-onset obesity and diabetes later on. In terms of screening for gestational diabetes, there are two primary strategies. The one that's probably most in use in the United States is the two-step criteria described initially by Dr. O'Sullivan and then refined by Drs. Carpenter and Kustan in their famous Carpenter-Kustan criteria. This starts off with a one-hour glucose tolerance test with a 50-gram load of glucose. If that is a screen positive, varying on the institution between 130 and 140 milligrams per deciliter of glucose, they end up with a second glucose tolerance test. That second glucose tolerance test is a three-hour test, 100 grams of glucose, and is diagnosed by gestational diabetes finally if there are two of four abnormal values on that screen. Even if there's only one elevated value, there's an increased risk of adverse perineal outcomes, but again, two values are required to be elevated to screen in for gestational diabetes. By the Carpenter-Kustan criteria, those values would be a fasting greater than 95, a one-hour greater than or equal to 180, a two-hour greater than or equal to 155, and a three-hour greater than or equal to 140. The alternative is a one-step approach endorsed by the International Association for the Study of Diabetes in Pregnancy. This is a 75-gram, two-hour glucose test. 
The cutoffs are a fasting of 92 or greater, a 1 hour of 180 or greater, and a 2 hour of 153 or greater. If any one of those are elevated, the person qualifies for gestational diabetes. Early GDM screening can also be considered and by ACOG is endorsed on a risk factor basis, but the best test to use is not entirely clear. You could consider an A1C, a glucose tolerance test, or a trial of glucose profiling. We then ended the podcast by talking about some updates in the world of GDM screening. So the first question that we tried to answer was, what's better, the two-step uh, or the one-step GDM screening styles? And there have been some randomized controlled trials as well as meta-analysis that have come out more recently. And what we've seen is that the patients with the one-step screening are more likely to be diagnosed with GDM, and they're more likely to use more resources. However, there does not appear to be differences in terms of neonatal outcomes. So some of the questions that we kind of have for this is that is one-step testing, does it actually differ from two-step testing in terms of maternal short-term outcomes? Um, and then, of course, the answer that we don't have is how does this, uh, what does this mean in terms of long-term outcomes? On the early gestational diabetes screening fronts, there have also been two randomized trials since our last podcast that essentially show that there's still a ways to go on proving the value of early gestational diabetes screening. Even though patients in each of these trials were randomized to either early screening and therapy versus usual timing, there were no noted differences in neonatal or maternal outcomes, at least in the short term. And then finally, we discuss the uh, question that a lot of our patients have for us, which is, can I eat before my one-hour glucose test? And uh, a recent article that just came out in the green basically answered that uh, where they showed that in those that ate within two hours of their gestational uh, diabetes test versus those that fasted for six hours, that those in the fed group actually had a lower rate of gestational diabetes. Unfortunately, this is, of course, a, a smaller study with, with only 100 individuals or so per arm of the study. And so it's hard to draw uh, full conclusions uh, as well as neonatal and obstetric outcomes from this size of a study. All right, guys, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creag's Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show as well as all of our other episodes on our website, as well as that Rosh Review question of the week. That will be at www.CreagsOverCoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a suggestion for a future episode, or just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.